And if you would have your Bibles open there to the text in Mark chapter 7, we'll be there for a little while and then we'll also be in Isaiah 35. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are going to ask for something that our eyes be opened, that our ears be unstopped to something infinite and eternal. It won't happen just because of eagerness. It won't happen because of cleverness of speech or turn of the word. It happens by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come in to do the kind of work that you would like to see done in your people this day. Amen. In February of 1882, there was a happy and healthy 19-year-old girl named Helen Keller, and she felt ill to what was then called brain fever. She survived the brain fever, as you know, but it didn't come without a cost, a fairly substantial cost. She was left without hearing or sight at 19 months old. Over the next four years, Helen Keller became a terror to live with. And in desperation, her parents actually went to go visit one of the foremost leaders in hearing problems, and that was Alexander Graham Bell, the person who invented the telephone, had then dedicated his life for children to hear. They went and visited with Mr. Bell, and Mr. Bell is the one who found a special tutor for Helen. Her name was Ann Sullivan. If you've ever seen the movie The Miracle Worker, or you've read the story of Keller's life, you have these pictures in your mind And it's this picture of Sullivan desperately trying to communicate with the deaf and blind Keller. And if you remember how that happened, typically they would put an object in one hand. Sullivan would put an object in one hand and then try to sign out the object in the other hand. So somehow she could make a connection between what she's holding on to in one hand and what she's being told about in the other The progress was fairly slow until April the 5th, 1887, and this is Helen Keller's own words of this description. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly, and I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers, and suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. It's fair to say that since the call of the disciples in Mark chapter 3, 
that Jesus himself has been working tirelessly with these disciples who we see, much like ourselves, very blind, very deaf to the gospel. And he's constantly placing himself into one of their hands and then spelling something out in the other and and seeing if they can put these concepts together. And he's hoping, like Keller, that one day they might stand still and have their whole gaze fixed upon Jesus. And like a, a fog that might lift, they would say, yes, I finally am putting these concepts together and I understand you are the Christ. So in this passage today in Mark 7 and 8, Jesus isn't just talking to a blind man. He's not just talking to a deaf man. He's talking to the blind and deaf disciples as well. And he's hoping that they're going to have this eternal thrill of finally seeing Jesus. I want to look at the passage in three different stages. Maybe like looking at an object and then blinking and see if you can see something else. Something that maybe you didn't see the first time and then blinking again and seeing if there's something else there still. First, we're just going to make some observations about these healings, something that all of us could see. Second, I want us to look at what the healings say from the past. What's happening here is pointing backwards to something that's already been stated. So our first observation is just what's happening with these healings. The second one is how are the healings telling us something that's been said in the past? And finally, How are these healings pointing us to some event in the future? First, let's look at and make some just common observations. It's pretty interesting that the healthy people are the ones that bring the wounded people to Jesus in both occasions. Notice that the deaf and the mute can't seem to find Jesus on his own. So a group of healthy people help him find Jesus, the blind man in the same case. What's common about both is that Jesus takes both people aside. Somehow he he doesn't want to perform the miracle in the crowd, so he takes one person aside privately. He takes another outside of the village. Both miracles are hands-on miracles. Christ lays his hands physically on these people and something takes place. Both in in a fairly unusual request. The, the, the deaf and the mute, if you can imagine this, being healed so you can finally talk and then being told by the person who healed you not to talk about me. Uh, like that would be possible for any of us to do that. And, and Jesus is, is trying to, he's trying to lay low here. And if this man goes out and begins to say things, he's trying to get a respite from all of it and it's not going to happen if this man speaks up. And of course he does. And the blind man is told not to go back into the village that he came out of. But I want to make two other observations and focus a little bit on those. One is Jesus' divine accommodation, especially to the deaf man. And second, that there's a variety in his healing. Look at verse 33. 
They brought to him, verse 32, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, begged him to lay his hands on him. And then look at verse 33. He's taking him aside from the crowd privately, he puts his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue, he looked up into heaven. I mean, what, what's, what's happening here? The, the deaf man, the mute comes along. Jesus takes the man aside. And is it sort of like the magician that's getting the hocus pocus down? And so everyone could see that, you know, something's going to happen. Is, is that what Jesus is doing for this man? Is that what he's doing for the few people that might be huddled around him? He, he's touching his ears. He, he's touching his tongue after he spit. He's, he's looking up into heaven. It's all a way of sign language. He's trying to help the deaf mute understand. He's taking him aside and saying, we're going to heal this. We're, we're going to heal that. And I want you to know where that healing comes from. He looks up into heaven. This is going to come down from heaven. Something is going to happen to you. I want you to know where it comes from. And the more I thought about this, the, the more stunning it became. That Jesus, the God of all creation, the holy, the almighty, the unchangeable, the infinite, the in eternal, the one who's already accommodated himself to us by taking on flesh. God is learning how to do sign language to communicate to this man. Do you see the divine accommodation? He's come from such a high place. And here he's getting down on his knees and saying, I'll do anything for you to understand. I'll learn sign language as if God might need to learn that. And it seems almost impossible that God in the flesh would humble himself to speak the language of the deaf mute. Almost impossible. You see, if you're a seeker here and you're thinking about who is this Jesus character, much like some of the characters in the text, one of the things that I want you to know is that Jesus has traveled an infinite distance to communicate with you. He's learned your language. He's come all the way to get down on His hands and knees to learn your sign language so that you might see Him. He does not require a single step by you to come up to His level in order for you to hear Him or see Him. God Almighty does not require one single step from you to sort of come up to His level so He can say, oh, okay, now I can communicate with you. He comes all the way. And the reason that's such good news is, what if an infinite being asked you to take one small step? How big of a step would that be for an infinite being? It would be bigger than any man or woman could possibly take. And so he understands he has to accommodate himself all the way down to our level so he could identify with us and we could hear him. There's an obvious application for the believer. God incarnate. Jesus, who has come to serve 
and not to be served. Jesus, who has put away the riches of his crown and taken on the towel of a servant. Jesus, in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And you and I, if we're called his disciples, need to ask this question. What kind of accommodations is he asking of us? What kind of accommodations for the gospel are we willing to make? How humbly are we willing to live? I mean, how much towel are you willing to wear? What length will you go to? What risks will you take? You see, you and I have a very few brief years on this earth. And they're getting briefer every day. And God Almighty, whom we're following in the person of Jesus Christ, has given up and let go of everything He could possibly grasp for you and I to hear the Gospel. He's gotten down and said, I'll do the sign language if you'll just see Me. Now, as disciples, what are you going to let go of? How many accommodations, how much towel are you willing to take on for somebody else to hear the Gospel? Or, or, or do you have to hold on to a little bit of your own estate? You see, Jesus gave it up. There are deaf and blind people all across the city. And one of the ways that we reach them is to accommodate ourselves so that they can hear this truth through our lives by what we've given up and sacrificed. So we see a divine accommodation in this healing, and we also see a variety in healing. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Syrophoenician woman, remember the woman who's come and Jesus gave her this parable, and in the parable she was called a dog, and we talked about that. And she was coming on behalf of her daughter. And Jesus said, go, your daughter is healed at the end of the story. You might call that the no-touch miracle. And then He comes to the blind and the mute. And you might call that the one-touch miracle. But then you have this very odd situation in Mark 8. And what happens? Jesus touches the blind man and He asks him, do you see anything? And He says, well, I, I see people kind of like trees indicating the man had lost his vision somewhere in his lifetime. And then Jesus actually touches him again in order for him to be completely healed. So you have the no-touch miracle. You have the one-touch miracle. And you have the two-touch miracle. And what I want us to see here is that experience in the Christian life is not what's normative. I want to say that again. Your experience in the Christian life is not what's normative. It's easy for believers to talk about their personal experience with Jesus as normative. Well, what day did you get down beside your bed and say the sinner's prayer and give your heart to Christ? Oh, you don't remember? Well, I remember mine. You, you, you must have been missing something. You need to have that experience. What point in your life did you break down 
What, when did you see that shooting star out there and you knew that was the moment? You see, we have all these genuine experiences. I'm not taking any of those away from us, but those experiences aren't normative over everybody's experience. What is normative for salvation? What is normative for salvation? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enters into the life of the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus Christ enters into the deaf and the mute. Jesus Christ enters into the blind person. And He has different experiences for each person. But what's normative is Jesus Christ being in salvation. He is salvation. You and I don't need a great experience. We don't need a great emotional moment. We, we don't even need great faith to be saved. To be saved, we have to have Jesus Christ. That's one blink. You look at the, the healings. You see just what's happening here on the surface. But, but Jesus wants us to see something else. So I'm going to ask you to blink your eyes and look at the story again and see if there's something else here Jesus is clearly pointing back to something in the past that's saying something. There's no doubt the healings of this blind and deaf man here together in Mark, that Jesus is trying to get the attentions of the, of the disciples and go back into the Old Testament Scriptures and see what the, the Old Testament Scriptures are saying concerning the Messiah. If you see in Mark chapter 7, verse 32, this word speech impediment, it's a very unusual Greek word, and you don't actually find it anywhere else in the New Testament. The only other place you find it is when it was, uh, when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated to the, to the Greek, it was used in Isaiah 35. And let's turn back to that to describe the deaf person in Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah 35 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So this word for the disciples, this word for the reader of the book of Mark would be like a signal. Hey, this is a very unusual thing, but I'm using it as a cross-reference to go back to Isaiah 35 and let's see what is being said about the person who's going to come. How do we know? What kind of signs would we look for for the Messiah to come? And Isaiah 35 says this, Strengthen the hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, behold your God. He will come with a vengeance, with the recompense or the divine retribution of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute Sing for joy. You you see, disciples, do you see? Disciples, do you understand when you see the eyes of the blind open? When you see the ears unstopped from the deaf man? When you watch the paralytic who was lowered through the roof? When he jumped up off of his mat and danced through the house and out the door? Do you see? It's not just that I want you to see. I want you to see something so much bigger. 
It's, it's as if Jesus is taking in the hands of the disciples the Scriptures. And He's saying, I know you're familiar with the Scriptures. You, you've been eating and chewing on the Scriptures since you've been a young child. Hold on to those. Do you hear the words of Isaiah 35? And now, put your hand on Me, Christ. This flesh and bone that's standing in front of you. Put the things together. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not just saying something about Himself. He's making an incredible claim. He's God. Behold, your God has come when you see this happen. And the disciples are are much like ourselves. Look, you can appreciate how difficult it would be for you today if somebody walked in and made this kind of claim. You'd have to have some pretty strong evidence. And Jesus understands that. And so He's taking the Old Testament Scriptures. They've landed on those that's been their life. And now He's saying, now put your other hand on Me. And put those things together. And He's asking him like the blind man, do you see anything? Notice in verse 37 of Mark 7, even the Gentiles have the right conclusion. Now, whether they are understanding their conclusion or not. They look at Christ and they say, He has done all things well. They're looking at this new creation, this deaf mute, now being able to hear and speak clearly, and they're saying, well done! And you hear, you hear the echoes of Genesis 1 in creation. When God looked at His own creation and said, it's, it's good. And now it is recreation. The Gentiles are saying, it's good. And then they say, He, he even makes the deaf hear. He, he's making this mute person speak. See, they're getting it. They're quoting out of Isaiah 35 and they don't even know it. And Jesus is looking at the disciples saying, do you get it? Even the Gentiles are saying it. Are you able to put it together? And the answer is no, they really aren't. But I'm asking you, are you? When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Is he just kind of a miracle worker? He's got some pretty decent things to say in the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, boy, if the world lived by him, it'd be a much more peaceful place. Or is he something very different than that? Can we put our hands on the Scripture and put our hand on Christ and see that he is God? God has come to this planet. Do we see him? That way. Well, that's another level. We're blinking and we're seeing what Christ is trying to communicate just to the deaf, to the blind. But, but we're looking again and saying, it, it has some ramifications. This is just isn't coming out of anywhere. It's coming out of the Old Testament. And He's helping the disciples look back so you can look at Me and see Me clearly. And then we want to see how Something is happening here that's also pointing to the future. Mark 
Jesus looks up into heaven and he sighs. This word in the Greek is groan. You, you might remember Romans 8.23. We, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await this, this deep sort of internal groaning. Like I'm just waiting for something to happen. This is weighty. This is difficult. Why would Jesus at this point groan? He's taken the man aside. Surely he must know he's going to heal this man. He's given him all the signs. He's put his hands in his ear. He's touched his tongue. He's looked up into heaven. <laughs> if you were Jesus, wouldn't you be kind of looking at this guy like, oh boy, you won't believe what's going to happen next, buddy. I mean, you'd just be so excited. Like, this is going to be the most incredible thing that's ever happened to you. But yet at this moment, Jesus expresses this heavy groaning as if He's under some sort of weight for this to happen. You remember in John when Jesus wept? John 11.35. This is your memory verse for the week. John 11.35. Jesus wept. Do you remember when that happened? Why did Jesus weep? Lazarus, his friend, is in the tomb. His two sisters have come out and said, please come help us. Where have you been? And Jesus comes to the tomb. He must know He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And if I were Jesus, I'd be looking around going, oh, golly, you won't believe it now. Watch out. I'd be just so excited. And yet, He's groaning. He's weeping at this tomb that's just about ready to crack open. You see, it costs something to heal a deaf person. It costs something for Jesus to heal a blind person. It cost Him something to bring a dead person back to life. In Isaiah 35, 4, he does say, Behold your God, but then he says how your God is going to come. He's going to come with a vengeance. He's going to come with this divine retribution, this recompense, it might say, in your version. He's looking for compensation. The divine is coming down and one of the things that is going to mark Him is He's looking for divine retribution. But then when we see Jesus, we don't see this. We don't see Jesus walking around with lightning bolts just ready to get you every time you do something wrong. And that's because Christ came not to bring divine retribution, but to bear it. You see, His life was going to bring down divine retribution, but not on you. He was bringing down divine retribution on Himself. He was going to bear it all Himself so that you and I didn't have to. Jesus is groaning because to restore the creation, to take away the deafness, the blindness, the deadness of each of us is going to mean that Jesus on the cross 
Do you hear his groaning? I mean, a lot of times we just look at the cross and say, oh, thanks be to God. But do you hear his groaning? He's bearing something weighty. And he wants the disciples to see it. Because there's this other day and it's in the future for the disciples and and look, they can't see it right now. But He's going to have to take their hands and say, go back. Go back to Isaiah 53. Remember what you've landed on. Where, Where you're coming from. And now, put your hand on something else. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. He was like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We esteemed Him not. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Do you see this? You, you're all like sheep. You've gone astray. But I have laid the iniquities of you all onto Him. He's coming to bear it. He did not open His mouth as if He was deaf. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked for the transgressions of my people, for he bore the sin of many. And so he takes the disciples' hands and he puts it on Isaiah 53. And he says, now put the other hand on the cross. Do you hear it? Are you able to put it together? Are you able to understand who I am? I'm the Messiah, but I'm not like what you thought I was going to be. I have to come and bear something. Something that you can't bear. And on the cross, it's like He's spelling it out slowly in their hand, hoping they'll be able to get it. Do you see and hear the horror of your own rebellion? When you hear and imagine the sighs and the groaning on the cross, do you see it? Do you see your own sin? Do you see the eternal weight of it? Do you see the divine accommodation? Do you see that? Do you see what's happening? A person has come in the flesh... God has come in the flesh and He's accommodated Himself to you and I so that He might bear it in the flesh so that our flesh doesn't have to. Do you see infinite love, grace, and mercy on the cross? Do you see that? Do you see anything? Like He asked the blind man. I'm touching you. Open your eyes. Do you see anything? Tell me what you see. If you're here today and you've seen, it's a gift of God. It's not because you stepped up somehow. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of smarter than most of those folks. It's not that at all. It's God's grace and mercy 
all the way. And all glory be to God. If you're here, do you see anything? If you haven't really considered Christ before, maybe your, your eyes are foggy. It's like, Paul, I hear what you're saying and, and I'm trying to look at the Scripture and I'm trying to put together what you're saying, but it's foggy out there. It's, it's like men looking like trees. Please come and find somebody to help you think through that process. If you're here as a believer... Do you understand the divine accommodation that was made on your behalf? I mean, do you understand what was given up for you to know Christ? It's beyond anything you're going to be ever asked to give up. He relinquished His hold on God. All the riches of the crown that He has. He let those go. And He put on a towel. And He put on flesh. And He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So all that groaning goes for eternal salvation for you. And I'm so sorry for myself and for you at times when it feels like I'm just not going to accommodate anymore. I'm just not going to give any more money. I'm just not going to give any more time. I don't care about those people enough. And yet, He's given everything. Let's pray. God, there's just weighty things happening here. And we're so much like the disciples. We, we see one thing and we see another and then we, we can't put them together. And so we need Your Holy Spirit to do that for us. God, if there's anyone here that just sees trees like men, it, it sounds right, but yet it's foggy. I, I can't quite put my hands on it. Would You direct them to somebody that could help them? Me or someone else? For every believer, oh God. May they hear the groaning for their own salvation. May they see the divine accommodation for their own salvation. May they take seriously the commitment of being a disciple of Christ and the cost of following Christ in this world. So that throughout all eternity, people might stand up and praise Your name. Lord, we come to offer our money, just paper. It's going to be burned up. It's not going to have any values. What we consider valuable gold is going to pave streets in heaven. And yet it's got a hold of our soul in ways that we don't even want to recognize. I don't want anybody to give a dollar thinking that makes them feel good. It's not about feeling good. 
It's about understanding. It's yours already. We're just recognizing that. We want to see you in our giving. We want to see you in our lives. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.